good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's read tonight in the Word of God from Colossians chapter 1. It says in verse 14, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. It is good to remember our history and to remember the heritage that we have as a, as a church in this place. And very much with regards to the history of our denomination, our heritage does not flow from Luther's Germany or from Calvin's Geneva or Zwingli's Switzerland. It flows very much from Knox's Scotland. John Knox was born just over 500 years ago. Uh, not quite sure, somewhere between 1513 and 1517. Born in East Lothian. Uh, a place called Harrington, a very important place actually in the history of the Scottish Church. He was a son of a merchant or a craftsman, and likely educated in Harrington Grammar School before moving on to St Andrews University. That, of course, is the first thing that uh, strikes us in uh, Knox's history, for he was there more than likely just after, a few years after, the burning of Patrick Hamilton at the stake for his profession of Lutheran doctrines. Hamilton burned in 1528. Uh, again, probably a few years later, Knox entered the university. And given the history of that town, it's inevitable that Knox would have been exposed to the teachings of Luther. His early history is, again, somewhat obscure, but he may well have been ordained to the Catholic priesthood in around 1536 as a young man. He served for a time as a legal notary in the East Lothian area of Scotland. There is one piece of a document that was found in, in quite recent years. It is an annotation to a notarized document dated March 1543. And under Knox's name, it says, A faithful witness to Christ, to whom be the glory. And so it may well have been just seven years after entering the Catholic priesthood that Knox had come to know Christ. And really there are five things I want to draw your attention to uh, that I think will be constructive and instructive to us in our time together this evening. First of all, he was a Protestant. Now, I use that term to describe what he believed. And oftentimes now, the term Protestant has been used to describe an ethnic culture or origin. But in the original and the correct setting, to be a Protestant was to describe what you held to be true according to the Word of God. Remember that Knox initially served as a Roman Catholic priest. Hence, to call a Protestant 
is not to describe his family background or his ethnic situation. It is to say that he came to the conviction that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Again, I remind you, the word alone is crucial. He was opposed to the administration of grace in the Roman Catholic sacraments. Like John Calvin and like others, Knox says little about his own religious conversion. In one place he says, I like this phrase, it pleased God to call me from the puddle of papistry. This man was an avowed person by faith in Christ alone. On his deathbed, he asked his wife to read to him from John 17. And in that request, he said, that was where I first cast my anchor, in Christ, in Christ's work as our high priest, in the certainty of salvation that Christ's prayers guaranteed, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. There is one account of his ministry in, in France in those early years, which speaks of how he made abjuration of the errors of the Roman Church and profession of the truth of the gospel. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, of course, it's important. Knox was a Protestant reformer. He was a man saved by grace alone who came to trust in Christ. But it is important because Knox is known for his work in establishing and organizing church polity for bringing together a form of church government. And it reminds us again that the true church is founded upon truth. It's founded upon gospel truth. Christ is the only foundation of the church. And those who are part of the true church must be savingly related to Christ Jesus. They must be in union with that cornerstone. And Knox understood that. You see, we are not part of the church because of our origins or birthrights, but only because of our conviction that is in our souls by the grace of God. And as we come together as a church, as we come together as a church in this place, we do so because we are united to Christ and thereby united to each other. We are what we are by the grace of God. But God's grace unites us around those truths. Knox was a Protestant. In the second place, Knox was a man of passion. Now, in the secular historical world, John Knox is often portrayed as some sort of tyrant, a firebrand, almost a dangerous individual. He was the one, of course, who stands against queens, not fearing his life. Now, when you read Knox, you read a man who is very conscious of his own weakness, very aware of his own inadequacy for the task. His own conviction regarding what he saw accomplished was this. He says this, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. How did God do work in Scotland? And remember, the work in Scotland far exceeded the work in England. The work in Scotland established a Presbyterian church, a form of government that allowed to be established and spread across the world. God did a great work, and Knox said, He gave His Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. You see, when God's Spirit comes upon men, He makes them men of zeal and passion. We have the words, of course, of 2 Timothy God hath not given us a spirit of fear, that is, timidity, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. 
I point this out not to exalt a man like Knox, but to urge you to pray for such a spirit in our day. We desire, we desire the Spirit of God to come down. We desire God to do a work. We desire a fresh working of God in revival. And that comes as God gives men passion. He was a man fervent in prayer. Of Knox would have said, give me Scotland else I die. That was the passionate heart of this man with a, a burden for his own people and a burden that came in that particular prayer. He's praying to the Lord, give me Scotland, else I die. Such is his burden for his own countrymen. He wanted the land that he loved to be marked by men who loved and served Christ. Do we have that passion in our souls? Do we have that burden when we come to prayer? Have we got that, that zeal within our hearts? That would then bubble over in prayer where people would, would come into your prayer meeting? Uh, how do you think, would, the, would they come, would an outsider come in and stand amongst us and say, they really want souls saved? Is that our testimony? Could that be said of our prayer times? Well, yes, we, we pray the prayers, but may God give us such a fire in our souls and a burden of heart we pray like never before. Give me Malvern, else I die. Give me the souls of men. His zeal gave fervency in prayer. His zeal also gave a fearless heart in practice. When he was laid in the grave, the Earl of Morton said this, There lies one who in his life never feared the face of man, who hath been often threatened with dag and dagger, but hath ended his days in peace and honour. That's from a tremendous book by how he called the Scots worthies. Here's a man who never feared the face of man. Those qualities make him less pleasant to your generation. But they made him the very man to stand in the face of opposition. He was a man of his times, a man for the times. Now we must only follow men as they follow Christ. But do you not see in this passion Christ being formed in that man? What do we see in our blessed Saviour? Mark chapter 1, he arrives a great while before day. We find him there in the context of his ministry as Christ is about to go to other cities and preach the gospel. We find Christ laboring in prayer. We find Christ standing against the religious authorities. We find Christ overturning the money changers. We see passion in Christ. And yet, why do we not bemoan such a lack of passion in our own souls? We may look strange and peculiar, but when God's Spirit comes upon a man and Christ is loved by that man, then there is a passion and a zeal that follows. The fear of man brings a snare. So let's pray for such a spirit to grip our hearts. Let's pray. Pray for those studying for the ministry. Pray for those men who go and raise up that they be men who would not be wholehearted in their passion for some recreational pursuit, but wholehearted in their passion for the glory of Christ. A man of passion. He was, of course, in light of this, in light of the fact he was a Protestant, a man of passion, he was a man who was persecuted. 
So much of the history and the lives of these men revolves around who happened to be king or queen at a certain time in their lives. Knox enters the stage of history, literally, with a double-edged sword in his hand. He served as a bodyguard to George Wishart. His pictures of Knox with a sword in his hand, accompanying Wishart on his preaching journeys. Wishart, of course, was the pioneer of the Scottish Reformation. And after ministry of only three years, he was martyred in 1546. By that time, Knox had become a close associate. And it seems that as Wishart's life was drawing to a close, Knox saw that he must serve as the Elisha to his Elijah. And thus, he comes to stand against Rome. Of Knox, it was said, others, it's an old Scottish word, others snared the branches of the papistry. What does that mean? Others, they lop off the branches of the papistry, but Knox strikes at the root also to destroy the whole. Knox is wholehearted in his opposition to error. And by the time 1547 comes along, the French come to the aid of their Catholic friends in Scotland. They come up around the coast and they lay siege upon St. Andrews. St. Andrews, of course, in the far east side of Scotland. And you can, you can seal there from France, and they did there. And St. Andrews comes under siege and Knox and others were captured. Knox spends the next 18 months as a galley slave. What was that? He was involved in rowing French sailboats. He was in the bottom of the boat and there were all the people they rowed, they rowed in, in parallel. And Knox spent 18 months because of his faith in Christ. McRae gives a, a well-known account of one of the events in the galley ship. Knox, I'm reading this quotation, Knox has preserved in his, his history a humorous incident which took place on one of those occasions. And though he has not said so, it is highly probable that he himself was a person concerned in the affair. One day, a fine painted image of the Virgin, that is the Virgin Mary, was brought into one of the galleys. And a Scotch prisoner, in inverted commas, was desired to give it the kiss of adoration. He refused, saying that such idols were accursed and he would not touch it. But you shall, replied one of the officers roughly, at the same time forcing it toward his mouth. Upon this, the prisoner seized the image and throwing it into the river said, Let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. The officers, with difficulty, saved their goddess from the waves. But the prisoners were relieved for the future from such troublesome importunities. There's just a, a glimpse of the zeal this man had for truth. But it cost him. You see, when you stand for Christ and you love Christ more than the world, you can guarantee it will cost you. He was, though, subsequently released into England when he became chaplain of the young Protestant king, Edward VI. His history is fascinating. He's carrying a double-edged sword for Wishart. He becomes chaplain of King Edward VI. Edward died in 1553 and was replaced by Mary Tudor, known as Bloody Mary. Her nickname gives indication of the hatred that she had for Protestants, and Knox was forced to flee to Europe, therein coming to Calvin's Geneva. 
where in Knox's own words, he found the most perfect school of Christ since the days of the apostles. One man said this, the Scots didn't invent Presbyterianism, they just perfected it. I imagine probably a Scotsman said that. You see, in the days between Christ's two comings, the church will indeed suffer persecution. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But when you look at Knox's life, and you look at him in a galley ship, and then released to England, then serving Edward VI in his work of reform, and then fleeing to Geneva, we see the invisible hand of God bringing a man who had a fiery passion for the gospel to the right place to be taught under the influence of Calvin and then to bring that back to Scotland. God's hand is at work. And that is not only the case for the 1500s. But as we meet to pray, as we meet as a church, as we find ourselves in increasingly troublesome days, God is still on the throne. And though trouble may come and though persecution may arise, we have the certainty that nothing will happen outside the control of Christ. The double-edged sword that Knox carries is really an emblem of the double-edged sword that Christ carries as the captain of the host. And he is the one who defends and protects his church. He is the one who's on the church's side. He stands for us. He defends us. And he'll make sure that nothing can destroy the soul of just one of his children. So Knox, as a passionate Protestant, was certainly persecuted for his faith. But in the fourth place, he was a preacher. You can still see the pulpit from which Knox preached in Edinburgh. When you go to St. Andrews and make your way south and go and visit some of the sites around Edinburgh. One writer says this, When John Knox surveyed the church in 1560, there were in the whole of Scotland 12 ministers. So 1560, we'll see, is a very important time in the history of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. By the year 1567, seven years later, there were 250 ministers, 150 exhorters, and 550 lay readers. John Knox saw the preaching of the word as the key to sweeping Scotland with the gospel of Christ and his grace. You see, for Knox, it was not about one man. We, we focus on one individual, but for Knox, it was an awareness of the importance of many men with beautiful feet going into all the world preaching the good tidings of the gospel. Knox can perhaps be summed up in this one well-known phrase, I love to blow my master's trumpet. And he loved to pass that trumpet to others also. He would share the convictions of the true gospel. Knox knew that Rome had hidden the word from the people. And the Scottish Reformation was birthed in the conviction that the word of God would change the people and the nation. There's a famous work called the Book of Discipline. And in that Book of Discipline it said this, In great times we think expedient, now listen to this, In great times we think expedient that every day there be either sermon or else common prayers with some exercise of reading the scriptures. Not once a week. 
but important that every day there was a gathering where the Word of God could be read and preached. Is it any wonder we are where we are today, given the great neglect there is of the appreciation of the preaching of the Word of God? I've said it before, I said it again, you simply need to see how many churches cancel their evening service on the Lord's Day to understand how little value there is in the public preaching of the Word of God. And so, when you think of Knox, and you think of what God did through Knox in the spreading of the gospel ministry, I, I ask you again, pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest. That is a prayer of this place, often prayed, maybe pray it again tonight. And may God be pleased to hear and answer such prayers. But finally, regarding Knox, he was a Presbyterian. Now, what I said about Knox up to this point could, in many ways, be said of any of the Reformers. But our link to Knox is a reflection of the peculiar legacy that Knox has given to his church. He's looked upon by many as the father of Presbyterianism. Now, we, of course, are a Presbyterian church. So that refers to our view of church government. Knox's exposure to Presbyterianism, I've said, goes back to the persecution at the hands of Mary Tudor. He found himself in Geneva and he saw Calvin formulating good church polity. And say, so after the death of Bloody Mary, Elizabeth I came to the throne in England and Knox in turn returned to Scotland. Now, those were tumultuous days in themselves. There was rebellion in Scotland. But by 1560, that's the year I mentioned before, by 1560, the Scottish Parliament had put an end to papal authority, removed the Mass, and adopted the Scottish Confession and the first book of discipline. That Scottish Confession of 1560 is available freely online, and I commend it to you for your studies. Knox was very influential in this book. He was one of the men known as the Six Johns. And this book, this book of discipline, governed the newly formed Scottish Kirk. Scotland had moved a long way ahead, and they were very influential in the 1600s in the Puritan Presbyterian movement. But they formed the Scottish Kirk. The word Kirk is a Scottish word for church, and the Kirk Presbytery first met in Magdalene Chapel in Edinburgh in 1560. Again, Magdalene Chapel is still in existence in Edinburgh. It's near the Martyrs area of the town. A number of years ago, our denomination held a protest at the Pope's visit in Edinburgh, and we held a service in Magdalene Chapel. We sang, and we had the Word of God preached in that historic place, 1560. The Scottish Kirk was Presbyterian, and still is to this day, although it has been ravished by much corruption and apostasy. Presbyterianism, of course, emphasizes eldership rule. It emphasizes many bishops over one church, not one bishop over many churches. It emphasizes the importance of church membership and church discipline. But what is often neglected in a proper understanding of Presbyterianism is the headship of Christ. 
So often when we describe Presbyterian government, we emphasize those other things, and we, we do not draw attention to the truth that Christ is the sole head and king of the church, not a pope and not a state ruler, not a king or a queen, but Christ and Christ alone. And that made Knox's Presbyterian form of government distinct and unique at that time. The separation of church and state was being formulated now in the formation of a truly Presbyterian church. No pope was head, no king was head, but Christ alone was head. Andrew Melville was a successor to Knox and refined some of that policy, but he expresses John Knox's mind when he was speaking to a future King James I. Melville said this, this is to King James I. There is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James VI is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. We will yield to you your place and give you all due obedience. But again I say, you are not the head of the church. There was understanding that Christ was the sole head of the church. We've read Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 tonight. And Christ is the head of the body of the church. But in all things he might have the preeminence. The opening words of the first book of discipline are these. Seeing that Christ Jesus is he whom God the Father has commanded only to be heard and followed of his sheep. We urge it necessary that his evangel be truly and openly preached in every kirk and assembly of this reign, and that all doctrine, repugning to the same, be utterly suppressed as damnable to man's salvation. Very thankful. I'm very thankful for the light that God gave a man like John Knox, that we would understand in our day that Christ remains the sole authority in his church. And that because he is only to be heard, that his word is thundered from our pulpits, believed on in our pews, by God's grace spread to the nations. We must pray passionately in light of Christ's headship of his church. That is our comfort, that is our encouragement. That he cares for his people. And he conquers for his people, bringing captive souls into the obedience of Christ Jesus. And so I commend to you the study of the life of John Knox. Not as a perfect man, he was far from it, but as a man raised up of God, who has much to say to our present day and generation. And as he followed Christ, so we would seek to follow him. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. 
That's 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.